I'm attacking the issue of legend first. I think that kind of became evident, but if you were looking for me to be refuting the idea of a liar or lunatic, uh, I haven't gotten there yet because we're focusing on the legend aspect of it. And the reason why I did that is because if Jesus is a legend, we might as well all just go home. So I wanted to address that and refute that. And the, um, it's important to, to make it clear that what we're worshiping is not a legend, that he is God in the, in the, in the flesh. And so um, I, I think I lost some people along the line there, and I'm hoping to uh, recover that today and to continue on. So, um, and if you go to the next slide, these are the things that we addressed. We started looking at, because remember, remember the, the, the gap that I emphasized like 40 times? The gap between, and for those who weren't here on Sunday, the gap, there's a gap between the events of the cross and the resurrection and when the scriptures were written. And skeptics say that that's the opportunity for legend and, and mythicism to creep in. That somehow, either the story, and, and they'll say this, the, the Jesus of the Bible isn't the Jesus of history. That the Jesus of the Bible was made up, was at the supernatural aspects were added. And so we're in the process of refuting that. Or that somehow the, the manuscripts that were written, the, the writings got corrupted and changed. How many here have ever heard somebody say, the Bible's been translated so many times and copied so many times that it's all messed up? Well, that's, 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 a, that's a, a, a skeptic's accusation, but is it true? We're going to look at that. And there's much more material that I'm going to cover, and that's going to be next Sunday. So we're going to look at the manuscripts. We're going to look at the, the errors and the... the um, uh, I forget the term they use for them, but it's where there's a discrepancy between one manuscript and the other. So we're going to look at all of that, but the point that we're trying to establish today uh, and continue to establish today is we talked about oral tradition. This is how, in an oral society, if you were to go back to that time, people preferred to receive their information orally. They would prefer it orally, not written. And so this was a very oral society. And they had ways of communicating oral information. And we talked about the fact that there was informal, uncontrolled information. That's how it was communicated. Then there was formal controlled, which was more like the rabbinic, where everything had to be controlled as far as how much, what was said, how it was said. And the thing of it is, there was a guy, Kenneth Bailey is his name, he lived amongst the Arabians for 40 years as a Bible scholar. And he's watched this oral tradition play out. If somebody gets up in front of the, their, their group and proclaims something and they're off, people from the audience speak up. No, 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 you said it wrong. And uh, remember I used the analogy of reading the bedtime stories for our kids? If you mess it up, and I used to do it on purpose... You know, where I would, we'd read the same story over and over and over again, but then I'd 
kind of tweak it a little bit and the girls got a big giggle out of it but they knew I was messing it up they knew it was wrong but this oral tradition is very very important in addition to that the the this culture exercised their memory far better than we do now there are some in our church that have really practiced the exercise of their memory and they've we're always so impressed when somebody can cite like an entire chapter of the bible right amazing i remember seeing this um this uh guy who uh worked at a restaurant he was a waiter and he could take up to 20 orders with special requests for each order and he could get everybody's order exactly right he didn't write a thing down and people were like wow memory that's real that's really good well critics say our memory leaks and so we can't remember things that well but this society, we're judging a, a first century society by 20th century standards, and you can't do that. So we're talking about memory, and that's where I kind of like had to cut it off because I ran out of time. Uh, but we're also going to talk about the value of eyewitness testimony, and we're going to talk about creeds. And then we're going to get into manuscripts. And um, how many do we have? What do we have? Were they corrupted? And, and then after all that, then we're going to address the issue of whether Jesus was a liar or a lunatic or is he actually Lord. And I think that you kind of know where I'm going with this, obviously. So let's pick it up where I left off, and we're going to start at memory. And I have to get to the right slide for myself. Okay, this is it. I want you to turn to John fourteen twenty six, and this is this is the beauty of what God has done. Does anybody here remember Jesus commanding any of his disciples to write down what he said? Only one place in Revelation where he tells John to write in the book, right? But all the time that Jesus was teaching. If what he taught was so important, why didn't he tell his disciples to write it down? Well, here's the answer. Because he already had confidence in this fact. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to what? Your remembrance all that I have said to you. Have you ever wondered how these guys write 28 chapters worth of Scripture? The Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance what he had said to them. Now the beautiful thing is this, is that Jesus taught in ways to help and enhance memory. And Next slide. Okay. He taught in parables and visuals. He, taught, he used word play and he taught in parallelisms. Next slide. So here are some of the examples of some of the visuals that he used and, and, and parables that he used. The sower of the seed, the grain of wheat, the, the wheat and the tares. We all remember this. Anybody remember the story of the prodigal son? Or the Good Samaritan? These are all word picture stories that help us remember what he's taught. And he used this very, very effectively in communicating the truth and the message of what he's trying to say. Now, by the way... Uh, this is this teaching, and the slides are on the sermon audio, so if you don't want to keep craning your neck up, 
you can actually put it on your phone and look on your phone at the slides if you choose. Uh, so another slide, next slide here. Same thing, the birds of heaven, the flowers of the field, the vultures and the, and the, and the carcasses, trees and fruit, the weather, the signs that weather. All these things are, are word pictures that Jesus used to communicate to us uh, what he was trying to say. The lamp, the salt of the earth, the light on a hill, the city on a hill, I should say. All these things are, are memory-enhancing techniques. Think of this, the visuals that he used in Mark 10.8. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a vivid, vivid word picture. Or where he says this in Matthew 7.3, why do you seek the speck, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own? We all remember these stories, right? I mean, these are things that we... We, um, we remember. Matthew 23, 24, he says, this is worth some wordplay. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Look at the spelling. Gnat is galma. Camel is gamla. So he's kind of using wordplay to communicate a message. Parallelisms. And we see a lot of parallelisms in Proverbs. Right? We see a lot of that. And, and through some of the Psalms, we see parallelisms. We see the same truth stated different ways more than once. So he says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Different techniques to enhance memory. Again, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So just wrapping up memory, the section on memory, he taught in a controlled way. But it was informal controlled, in the sense that he allowed for the disparate personality of the, of the, the disciples and the apostles to express things from their perspective. And so the core of the message had to remain the same, but the way they expressed it could be different. And he expected his disciples to remember what he taught so that they could do what? Communicate it to others. Teach it to others. That was the whole thing. And I, what level of, of confidence do you think Jesus had in the Holy Spirit? Perfect confidence, right? Otherwise he would have told... If it was dependent upon the disciples, he would have told them to write it down. If it was dependent upon the oversight of the Holy Spirit, the oversight of God preserving his word, then I think he has a pretty high confidence level in the Holy Spirit being able to bring to remembrance the things that he taught. So let's move on to eyewitness testimony. In any kind of a crime situation, as you guys all know, if you like crime uh, stories, <laughs> not crime, but crime stories, uh, eyewitness testimony is powerful, right? And so, but we also know that eyewitness testimony sometimes comes from different perspectives, right? As I, I kind of emphasized last, 
last Sunday that if you ask a husband what he saw in a store versus a wife what she saw in the store or whatever, they're going to come up with different stories. The core information can be the same, but what people notice is different. And we see that in the Gospels. That's the beauty of the Gospels is people say that's a problem because they don't harmonize perfectly. But that's exactly what you would expect in real eyewitness testimony is the lack of they didn't, they didn't collude together and put four, their four heads together and say, let's write it exactly the same. What good would that be? But, yeah, it was, it's unnecessary. You only need one then. But that's not the way the Lord did it. He used the personality of these eyewitnesses to proclaim the truth, but from their perspectives. But he controlled the core of the information. Does that make sense? Okay. So... Being in the right place at the right time is important. And thank God that the apostles were in the right place at the right time. Jesus said this at the end of Luke 24, verse 46 through 49. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be what? Proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are eyewitnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power to do what? Power to boldly proclaim the truth of what they saw. Did it require power for them to boldly proclaim the truth? Amen, because they were going to be persecuted. And he knew that. So he empowered them to be able to proclaim it as eyewitnesses and tell what they saw. But it was going to take the power of the Holy Spirit to embolden them to do that. And that's what we see. In John 21, 24, at the end of John, he, sa- he writes this. This is the disciple who is doing what? Bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. So now we're at the point where John has written the gospel. And somebody else tagged this sentence on, and we know that his testimony is true. In other words, the witness of John the Apostle is true. John 1, 1 John, excuse me, 1 John 1 through 3. I love this scripture. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have what? Heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon it, which we have touched with our hands. That means Jesus came in the physical. He's making a point here is that this is a, a, not an apparition. Not some kind of spiritual Jesus, but a physical Jesus who came. He said, <clears throat> we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which all, harkens all the way back to the gospel of John at the beginning. The word was with us. The word was with God. It says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's doing exactly what he was told to do. He's proclaiming the truth and he's He's testifying to the fact that this Jesus was in the flesh. 
and yet he was God become man. Peter says the same thing. In 1 Peter 1, 16-18, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor, this is referring to the transfiguration, and glory from the, the God the Father, and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the mountain. So do you think that this impacted these guys to see the transfiguration, to see the veil pulled back and to see the glory of Jesus? They were so convinced about what they saw that obviously they were willing to die for that. And they did. Luke, at the beginning of Luke. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness to the resurrection, but he interviewed and questioned the eyewitnesses. And then he compiled his testimony, his, his, his account. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, so others have already written before him, He's referring probably to Mark at least. Maybe Matthew as well. So many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So they did what they were supposed to do, right? They delivered the words that they received. They proclaimed them. And he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. Now, the reason why he emphasizes orderly account is because Mark, who was not an eyewitness, was listening and writing what Peter taught. So, Peter's account, the account of Mark, isn't as orderly. It's kind of like a little bit disorderly. But Luke is distinguishing himself in the sense that he is writing an orderly account, which would mean more on the chronological order of things. And it is when you read it. So he made a distinct purpose to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He says that you, and the reason why he did this, so that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. What's going on here? Acts 2.32, which we studied recently when Peter is making his um, proclamation, not his, um, his preaching but it was a proclamation. He said, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So 
again, Peter boldly proclaimed what he saw. And as I had stated before, remember in the second message, in the, after the healing of the lame man in the portico, Solomon's portico, he proclaims this, and he proclaims it in the front of those who were, were asking for Jesus to be crucified. He's right in their face about it. And he says, you crucified him, but God raised him. If, if, if that hadn't happened, what do you think they would have said? We didn't do anything. Jesus wasn't crucified. You know, they would have denied it, but they didn't do that because they knew. And many were actually added to the number that day. Norm Geisler, who is a, um, a New Testament scholar, makes this point. We have 27 books in the New Testament, and uh, we have eight authors, I believe eight. Some will say there was a separate, different author to the book of Hebrews. But um, I think that we've been kind of convinced that that was uh, our brother Paul. So if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, and James, these are writers of the New Testament. This is by comparison. <laughs> so they're eyewitnesses. Or they had access to eyewitnesses. That would be Mark and Luke. They had close association. Mark to Peter, Luke to Paul. Luke traveled with Paul. And somewhere around, I think uh, if you read the book of Acts, somewhere around the 15th chapter, the narrator changes from, uh, from they to we because he began traveling with Paul. And um, so, but it says here, by comparison, most events from ancient world are recorded by only one or two writers. So all the ancient writings that we have, the Greco-Roman writings, at best they have two witnesses. And we have eight. And uh, it, it's just, it's unheard of in ancient, in ancient documents in history to have that many witnesses writing about the same thing and the same person which would be Jesus Christ so for the New Testament we have more written records by more authors than any other book from antiquity and the ancient dictum is still still reads the same today a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses and here is the list of the authors Matthew was an apostle Matthew was walked and lived with Jesus. Mark was an associate of Peter. Luke was an associate of Paul. John, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. Was Paul an eyewitness to Jesus? Yes, he was. He met him on the road to Damascus, face to face. Peter was an eyewitness. James, these are the writers. These are the guys who wrote the New Testament. James brother to Jesus and Jude brother to Jesus these are the guys who wrote the New Testament these were eyewitnesses do you think the brothers of Jesus were eyewitnesses to things when it came time for um, the replacement of Judas what was the criteria that the replacement had the person had to uh, 
to fulfill? What was the requirement? It says here, um, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning where? Beginning at the baptism of John. So from the very beginning of his ministry until the day when he was taken up from us, the ascension. That was the requirement of, of an apostle replacing Judas. One of these men who be, to become this. They must become an eyewitness to the resurrection. And then there was the two men were put forth. Matthias was the one chosen. So here are some facts that are interesting about the the eyewitness testimonies. Now again, this is basically saying this. These men wrote according to the Holy Spirit as he led them, and they didn't collude together. They didn't try to match up their stories. They wrote as moved by the Holy Spirit. And there's some things that that are that prove that it's authentic. Because if you were going to fake a story, wouldn't you put your heads together and say, let's make sure that we get our facts straight? Don't people who are in, in, in some kind of collusion, don't they do that? Let's put our heads together and make sure we get our story straight. So when we're all interrogated, we say the same thing, right? Well, that's not what happened. They didn't attempt to harmonize their accounts. And there were conflicts between their accounts that people talk about to this day, right? One angel at the resurrection, two angels at the resurrection, women at the resurrection, you know, so forth and so on. Uh, They included material that put Jesus in a bad light. His hometown friends tried to kill him. That's kind of like if you're trying to, you know, to to foist upon people this Messiah, uh, you think you're going to include those facts whenever you tell people about him? Or um, the fact that his family thought he was crazy? Or his followers deserted him. Remember whenever he said, you must eat my, my flesh and drink my blood, and quite a few people said, I'm out. That's, this is just, it's too weird for me, I'm out. Um, they retained self-incriminating details. We know this about history, that when people write history about themselves, what do they do? They paint themselves in a favorable light, right? They usually exclude all the, the negatives. Um, but these guys wrote and they talk about the fact that they fell asleep when they should have been praying. That they actually were afraid for their lives many, many times. That Peter denied Jesus three times. Um, and refusing to believe even the resurrection. Thomas. Uh, they included demanding sayings. Uh, there was no attempt made to cover them up. Like I said, just said, drinking his blood, eating his flesh... Hate your family. That's a good one to just, you know, go <laughs> proclaim, you know. <clears throat> uh, they distinguished, made it very clear to distinguish their words from Jesus' words. They didn't, they made a clear distinction. That's important because these is, this is what Jesus said. Now I'm saying this. They didn't deny their testimony even under threat of death. If you know you're lying, and somebody's about to boil you in oil or to saw you in half, do you think you might recant? Most of us would, okay? 
So these guys, they didn't because why? What they were saying was true. 11 uh, of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. And they claimed their own record was based on eyewitnesses. Uh, these are other facts. The, the women that they had witnessing the resurrection. If you're going to try to lie about a resurrection, the last people you're going to have as your first eyewitnesses would be women. Because back in those days, the testimony of women had no value and no validity in a court of law. They challenged readers to check out what they were saying. And they also, this is a big thing, they discarded long-held Jewish traditions and beliefs in instantly once they knew who Jesus was. So this is all to say that these eyewitnesses just told what they saw. They didn't collude together. They didn't fake it. And they didn't try to make up a story. They just told what they saw and they communicated that to people. And that's the beauty of, of, of their testimony. Now, here's some interesting facts. The whole book on just this. If I was to ask you, I want you to write a, a, a book on first century Egyptian life. That's your assignment. First century Egyptian life. And you have to cite names, places, rulers, cities, streets, rivers, ge the geography of the place, and the botany. Do you think you could get it right? Now, the point is, is that skeptics say that the writers of the New Testament wrote way after the events. They put it off into the second century, and they say they weren't even written by people that were in Jerusalem. But the problem with that is that the disciples, when they write, they get everything exactly the way it was at the time. Like, what was a common name back in those days in Palestine, in, in Jewish Palestine? What, was, what were common names? The most common name was Simon. So how many times was Simon used in the New Testament writings? versus how often did Simon occur in society. You know how we have our most popular names in our society and it changes on a regular basis? Well, they had popular names back then as well. And when these guys literally study the New Testament writings, scholars, they break it down into, and what they did is they looked at the bone boxes, the ossuaries, and they looked at all the documents that were available for society and they stratified the use of the names. And guess what? The percentage of the use of the names for the name Simon broke out in their society at some kind of like 40 some odd percent. Well, guess how often it, off, it, it, it appears in the New, New Testament writing? About 40 some odd percent. And on and on with, with so many things that, like, like I said, cities, customs, botany, you could not have made this stuff up if you were writing from a remote area and had no knowledge of the area. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's an example. Um, I, I just stated it uh, about Simon, the frequency of the occurrence of the Simon. Okay, <clears throat> let me ask you this question. I'm gonna, before I go to the next slide, let me ask you this question. Remember, uh, remember uh, Zacchaeus? 
Where was Zacchaeus when he climbed the tree? Anybody remember? Jericho. What kind of a tree did he climb? Sycamore tree. How do you guys know that? (laughs) Okay, so in Jericho, there was a sycamore tree. Well, if you go back uh, to the first century, were there sycamore trees in Jericho? Well, guess what? These, this book that I, that I read showed that just on the certain belt uh, uh, of the, la- the longitude or latitude, I can't remember which, um, the longitude, right, is this way, <clears throat> there was a spattering of, of sycamore trees. So they even got the botany right. So when we look at it, we realize these men had intimate knowledge of the area. And they used that. And just, they were just writing. They weren't sitting there trying to, to um, fake it. They were, they were writing exactly um, the way they saw it. So, okay, you went to that one. Okay. Um, I've got 12 minutes. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to stop here because I've got probably another 15 slides to go and I don't think I'm going to be able to get through those. So we will be back next Sunday talking about this and hopefully what I want to do, we're going to talk about creeds next. And there's one creed that, that just nails it for the dating of the New Testament and the writings and so forth. And it's it's just phenomenal that the Lord has done all these things to make it sure and give us an assurance that this was not some fairy tale, but that this is the gospel and this is what happened. And they were eyewitnesses that wrote what they saw and they didn't try to make it. So we'll stop here and then um, next Sunday we'll continue. All right? Thank you.